Father, it's exciting to realize that not only do you create mountains, you don't move them out of the way when we ask because you want us to learn how to climb. You want us to grow in Christ, which is what this passage, this series has been all about. It's the problem with the Corinthians. They had it upside down. So as we face those struggles, there are many here uh, that would love for you to step in and alter their lives entirely. We would love for you to step in and alter the way Oregon is going and our nation is going. But they are opportunities for us to climb, to grow, to watch you work when it's beyond our ability. And so help us to trust you and to relax and to cry out to you in prayer a lot more than we do now. But to thank you, knowing that you're only doing good things for us in preparation for your son's return. But use us, Father. Make a difference in this world. Help us to reach those around us by our actions and by our words, by our testimony of what you've done in our lives with the gospel. And may this message today edify, may it build us up toward that goal. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going through a series that will end next week, Lord willing. Um, second to last message in that series on uh, spiritual gifts. Paul has been talking quite a bit here, making it clear, if you haven't been here or you didn't catch it, that prophesying is far superior to speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues in the church required a secondary gift. It was difficult to edify. It was never given for that purpose. And so we've spent some time here recently laying that out in Scripture. Um, we've made it clear in chapter 13 that tongues have ceased. Their purpose that we're going to look at today is no longer, they're no longer necessary. And in case you're wondering, that's where I'm coming from. I don't want you to, to wonder what, what the pastor's teaching, but you also have to check the pastor out because he's just a man. And you're going to get into the word and make sure what it says, but not go by life experiences or by what others tell you. You're going to get into the word, right? Okay. We're all here. How many are here this morning? Okay, good. We need to recognize, as Paul gets into this passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 25, he's zeroing in on the personal immaturity of the problem with tongues in the Corinthian church. Um, there was a reason God had given out. It had a historical judgment attached to it. Uh, and it was used specifically regarding Israel. And we'll see that come out in the passage. But what you don't want to lose sight of as we go through all of this is the whole focus of 1 Corinthians as a book was to teach the church there to grow up, to be, be, be mature. And the best way to know that is by the evidence of love. Now, love isn't the fuzzy thing you feel when you go out on your first date. We call that puppy love. Love is the thing you do when you are sacrificially dedicated to someone. Then you hang on the cross for them. It doesn't, it's not influenced by um, sins against you or something that somebody has done that you can't let go of, that you want to make sure they get paid back. It's not by personalities, as we saw a great message in Sunday school, and I keep telling you guys, you're missing it. Great message. And it's all to realize that it's not skin color, it's not body size, it's not male or female. It has nothing to do with all the things that people instantly classify people, and stereotype people. Um, it has every opportunity. You see a human being, you have an opportunity to love them. More like the Good Samaritan as he stepped in to help um, a Jew who had been injured. And Samaritans had nothing to do with Jews. And so you, you see this laid out. It's all about love. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. All of this. Don't get so mired in this whole thing. Can I speak in tongues or not? What, what am I supposed to do with, with this in the church? And how do I fellowship with people? How do I know people are even saved if they're not speaking in tongues? They get wrapped up in all this stuff and they lose sight of the very thing that Paul's trying to teach. You need to grow up. You need to love each other. And if you do that, tongues will be at the bottom in the first century when it was being used, it will be limited by two or three and always interpreted in the church. But prophesying will be put at the top. It's number one. It's, well, next to apostles, then comes prophecy. And that's the one that needs to be lifted up because that's the one that edifies. Remember what he said? How many words in the tongue? I'd rather speak 
five words in a tongue, I mean, um, five words in an understandable language to edify than 10,000 in some kind of tongue that people do not get. And yet, church after church after church today, on the TVs, that's what they're doing. So what's not happening in those fellowships? They're not being edified. They're not growing up. They're not moving toward Christ-likeness. They're not maturing in their love for one another. Remember in chapter 11, just to clarify some of this, there were some of the Corinthians, believers, like in our church, all of a sudden some of you would get sick, not with COVID, but with, with a, a sincere sickness, or you'd have this weakness, or some of you were actually dying, and Paul told them the reason that was happening is because you weren't loving one another. Pretty serious. That was this church. Remember back in chapter 3, just to bring the context in before we dive into this one. He says, I, brethren, 3.1, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, carnal, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. That covers this letter that he's writing to them. That's the problem in that church there. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? So it's a pretty clear layout. If you sat down and read the book, you'd understand this all flows together. And he gets into chapter 14, verse 20, and he deals with a problem here. Verse 20 says, brethren, who's he talking to? Fellow believers. He's not questioning their salvation, but he says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. So when you take an imperative, a command, and you put it in the present tense, the way you translate verse 20 is, stop acting like children. So he's still there at this point. They hadn't figured it out. They hadn't changed in the middle of the letter, and they're already improving. This is where they're living, and he makes it very clear. He leads them toward Christ-likeness. And this word for children is different than the word for babes. This word for children is a little or small child. It's used metaphorically or figuratively of believers who are deficient in spiritual understanding. Childlike. And this comes out of Vine's Expository Dictionary, page 100, if you want to know. But as he gets into the second part, because this is what he's really stressing in your minds, in your reasoning, I want you to not be childlike. You've got to grow up. You've got to move on. You've got to become adults in Christ. Yet, and you use a strong contrast there, Allah is but in evil be babes. If you want to be a babe in one area, be a babe in evil. This, this idea of evil here is wickedness and depravity. And the word evil means something that wishes to harm somebody else. You ever gotten that way? You're not walking by the Spirit, are you? And your desire is to lash out and to cause harm. This is a vicious character, a vicious character that's full of resentment and evil intent. I'm going to get you. And he says in that realm, he says, I want you to be babes. Present tense, imperative. This is an ongoing action that's commanded to be as a very young child who cannot speak. What age should they start talking Around two. And got boys and girls are different. But I mean really talking. And there's very, very, uh, major changes. We're watching it in one of our grandchildren. But this summer, once she hit two, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where are these words coming from? How's he, how are they putting these sentences together? And, and so prior to that, he's talking about somebody in our culture up to the age of two. Um, and so he's talking about that they should not be speaking wickedness, depravity, this resentment and evil intent, what they're going to say to others. It's an, uh, Vines again brings this out. It's an immaturity that's always associated with words. So basically what he's telling you is act like younger than a two-year-old so you can't talk. So those things don't come out of your mouth. It's not that you don't feel them or you're tempted to say those things. You said act like that two-year-old where you can't get them out of your mouth. You love people around you so much that you would not dare to talk to them like that. How are we doing? Anybody arrived? Anybody convicted? We struggle. And so as you're looking at this situation, he tells them first to wake up, 
and realize the situation that you're in. Then he says to back up and move away from what they were doing to one another with their words. Stop talking. And then he moves to the area of growing up. In your thinking, this is the whole area of your reasoning, in your mind, be mature. Guess what that is? Present tense command. He's just thrown three of them, bam, bam, bam. And he's bringing them in because of what he's talked about in the chapter, which I can't get into in limited time. But based on those things, now he stresses to them, be mature, be full grown, be fully developed, be acting your age, Christian like sensible adults. So what do you think the church was like? If you just kind of want to picture that back in the day, what was it like to go to church in Corinth on a typical Sunday, morning or evening? They may have had a meet in the evening. Chaos, lots of people, food on one side of the room and not on the other, alcohol on one side of the room, not on the other. As you see in 1 Corinthians 11, some were drunk, Some were eating, others were going hungry. What else was it like? What's it like when you have a room full of babies? Noisy, the chaos comes in, but also... What is it? Stinky? Okay, we could go that route. That's not what I was thinking. Maybe diapers need to be changed. But but what do do two-year-olds think about? Who do they care about? Oh, they got a lot of answers. They typically respond to mom unless mom wants them to do something they don't want to do. Then who do they want? Dad. But if dad supports mom, then who do they want? Grandpa, grandma. They're, they're looking. They're searching. So you have this room of selfish brats in the Corinthian church who could care less about each other and totally care a lot about themselves. Great service. Oh, sorry, there isn't any service in that fellowship. They all want to be served. They all have expectations, demands. And then when they don't get their way, what do they do? They least complain. Their facial expressions change dramatically. Yeah, their, their face falls down. They may whine. They may throw temper tantrums. They may throw themselves on the ground and kick their feet. My mom used to babysit when we were young. We had five kids, and typically they were from broken homes, which is why my mom needed to babysit so mom could go to work. They were a mess. We trained a lot of kids, but we had one. His name was Charlie Brown, what we called him. And I still remember Charlie Brown just pulling his A, sitting in the family room like this. And we'd go, Charlie Brown, what is the matter? And he didn't get his way. See, in our house, we had rules and direction. We didn't spank him, but we had, and we enforced what, what my mom would tell him to do. And so Charlie Brown wanted to do something. We told him, no. You never act like that, do you? And then we'd, he'd be sitting on the chair. So John, Charlie Brown, you need to sit for a couple minutes and think about it. And then we'd come back to him. We'd kind of warm up to him, try to talk to him, coax him out of it. And all of a sudden, you see this little smile start coming up on his face. And he fit right in. He realized, oh. New home, new rules, here's how life goes. Soon as mom walked in the door, Charlie Brown threw a temper tantrum every single day. She didn't know what to do with him. She did not have consistent rules. She did not have a man in the house. There were so many things missing. And Charlie Brown became a different person at home than he was at church. This church, when you gather here on a Sunday morning, should change you. We're going to get into that when an ungifted man or an unbeliever comes in. If it's done the right way, they get convicted. You should not come here and go, well, that was boring. Something really wrong with either you or the church. That was a lousy message. Didn't enjoy the songs. Nobody talked to me. And on and on. What what do you call that person? A two-year-old? That came all about themselves and they didn't get their way. And they throw a temper tantrum. You understand that's what's going on here. This is what Paul's saying. Knock it off. Wake up. Back up. Grow up. He's not asking them. This is what you don't do, and I see it all the time today. Oh, if I get you a candy bar, will you, will you, will you stop wrecking the store? And they kind of look there and go, maybe two or three candy bars. They, they're they're going to be great negotiators. 
Paul is telling them what to do and holding them to it. God is holding them to it. When you take some of them and make them weak, sick, and dead, doesn't that get their attention a little bit? And then Paul spells it out to them in case you missed this. Steve's no longer with us. He messed up too many times. God said, home with you, buddy. You're, you're in the way. We have a goal with this spaceship here. We're heading toward Christ-likeness. And you're slowing it down. You're dragging other people into the mud. You'd be far better off when just coming home. So he's trying to get that attention in the very beginning here. He's dealing with this problem and he lays it out fairly succinct. But Paul is doing this because he loves them. Isn't that how you treat a two-year-old? Aren't they always the easiest thing in the world? And no struggle. They don't wake up in the middle of the night screaming over something. Bad dream, noises, too hot, too cold, change diaper, whatever. You know, they're constantly making demands. And so as a parent, how do you respond? You can do it one of two ways. Out of love, and you meet their needs. And out of love, you say no. Or you can cater to them, which is what we're seeing today, and you're watching America go down the tubes. Because parents are giving, they're letting the children lead the homes, child-centered, instead of leading their children toward righteousness. So do they love their children? That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? But if they're not directing them toward the best, what's best for them, sacrificially taking care of their needs, sacrificially saying no, when I know what I'm going to get back. See, our children didn't do that long. One of them just stepped out. A couple of them are sitting around here. But um, they realized, at least with me, my dad was a machine, so I was machine-like. I modified a little bit. Some of them are telling me I'm actually mellowing now that I'm getting to be older. But when I said something, I was trained very, very well in my home. My dad said something. You didn't think about it. You didn't hesitate. You did it which was what the old generation was like. And nobody complained when you got a spanking. You couldn't appeal to the neighborhood or to the, court, the judges or to the governor or to somebody like that. There was no, no place to go. So you went, yes, yes, sir, and you lined up and you did what you were told. Today, that's gone. And, and all these children that are rioting now and the younger generation, they're demanding. They don't even know what they're demanding. And this is what this goes on to with their thinking. They're immature. They're ignorant of so many things, and yet they're making decisions that are going to affect their eternity. And it's a lot harder to reach them with the gospel. Sometimes they hate you just for having a flag up, let alone tell them they need Jesus Christ because they're a sinner. So it's a, it's a hard day that we're living in, but God is asking us as a church to come together to be built up in Christ and then to go out to share that message with the lost world. And to come alongside them in their hour of need, which is when they're most vulnerable. We saw that when we used to go to the rescue mission. You had a, the only reason people were there, you would think, oh, they, they like it there. It's free food. It's a place to sleep, a shower. No, they hated it there back in the day. Now maybe they enjoyed it differently. They didn't want to be there. Satan didn't want them to be there. He wants them to be happy in sin, content in their lifestyle. See, when they hit bottom, when you'd go there, it was good for me as a teenager to go watch and then to get chances to, to teach. That's where I started first teaching. And you see them out there drunk, sleeping, speaking during your message, fall, you know, um, falling over, throwing up. It, it was like, it's just, that was the world. And I went, oh, okay. But then you'd see one of them come to Christ and the ones running the mission had all come to Christ, most of them through that mission. And they would share their testimonies because they, they always did that. They had a message and a testimony. And so I got to hear as we went once a month and had our turn with our church there, downtown San Jose. Not the best place in the world that you want to hang out. But God was at work in their lives. This is what you're doing. You go along and you have 99 people reject you or hate you or, or attack you. You're looking for that one person. They're all seeing your love, if it's real, if it's genuine. They're all going to be convicted, but you're looking for that one person that you can actually share the gospel with. So Paul takes him in this context of loving one another, in this context of putting tongues on the bottom and prophesying on the top. He says in verse 21, in the law it is written. You're kind of going, Where, Paul, what are you doing? Where did this come from? Out of the blue, you're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. In the law it is written, Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. 
By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Who were the people? The Jews, as we use that term generally. Judah, Israel would have been specified, but I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me. That's the verse he pulls out of the book of Isaiah, which is big, the biggest focus there is on Judah. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried off into captivity. He's trying to warn them. And he says, by the men of strange tongues, who were those men? Okay. But they were men of strange tongues. They were foreigners of spoke a language that the Jews weren't going to understand. And that's a key thing there. What I don't know that you're grabbing onto is when tongues were used in the first century, God's way with willing listeners, they understood. When tongues were used in the first century, instantaneously, miraculously, not trained, not working their way up, but Peter just all of a sudden talks his own way and God takes it out in 15 different dialects for people to understand. That was supernatural. And God was reaching out to people, but they responded two ways in Acts 2. Some said these are drunk. Okay, they're going to the negative one first. They're crazy because they didn't understand. They were the same picture here. They were hearing strange tongues. It wasn't clear to them. They weren't picking up on the sign. They didn't want the sign. Just like Israel was in um, Isaiah 28, where when God came in, he was judging them. And when you see Acts 2, he is beginning the preparations to judge them. In 70 AD, what went? The temple, the priesthood, the genealogical records, they estimate at least 1.1 million Jews died. The priests, gone. Sacrifices, gone. You realize none of that has taken place since AD 70? And the Jews were scattered because of their defiance. They wouldn't listen. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost heard the tongues, were amazed, listened to Peter's message, and believed. How many others lived in the city? Again, they guesstimate maybe as many as a million. What's the percentage between 3,000 and 1 million? It's very low. Yeah. And so people think, man, 3,000 people came to Christ. No, only 3,000 out of a million Jews that should have been responsive. It's a day of Pentecost. This should have really just blown them away. They weren't listening. They didn't want to know. How's America doing today? Following in the same shoes. Not with the same goals, not being God's people, not having God's prophets, not having God's law, God's temple worship system. They don't, the, the Gentiles, they don't have any of that. And they're being lied to. Again, going back to Sunday school. Ken Ham laid that out so crystal clear of what the scientific facts are about evolution. There is no such thing as evolution. It is an impossibility. And yet it dominates our schools and they will instantly throw you out if you start as a teacher to try to teach or creation. They're deceived. Where's the science? They think, like COVID, that people have been telling them the truth. They're lying. They're lying on every single level because they're children of the devil. As your father, the devil, lies, so will you. It's just the, the lifestyle. They think it's normal. They actually brag about it sometimes, how they pull the wool over people's eyes. I hate to pick on lawyers because they're not the only ones. But when you get in a courtroom, does the lawyer in, in your defense speak up and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? No. They're trained to not do that. They're trained, on the other hand, to twist everything and make it come out the right way so the jury sides with you regardless of the truth. That's not what Christians want. You don't want a lawyer like that. If you've done something wrong, you want to get a proper settlement. You want to do the best you can under the law, but you're basically standing up there to confess. And the lawyer can guide you through the process. So maybe you spend two years rather than 20 you're guilty. This is what people won't do today. They won't acknowledge they're guilty before God. And so God sent into his own people, his chosen people, this, these strange tongues, men with strange tongues. And the lips of strangers, as he kind of describes them, languages of the aliens or foreigners, these stammering lips. 
Out of the mouths of outsiders, God rebuked his own people. Out of their mouths in the sign of tongues, he spoke to his own people. And even so, under such circumstances, they wouldn't listen. What was missing? God was perfect. The message was perfect. What what was wrong? The hearts of the hearers. Same thing you're going to wrestle with when you try to share. It's the same thing that keeps most of us back from ever even opening up. Because all they're going to do is pick on me, humiliate me, um, try to make a joke out of me, try to get me fired, try to what, what, you know, on and on it goes. Well, do you love them? Are you sacrificially devoted to them? Are you willing to give up whatever it takes for them to come to Christ? Then what's the problem? Why would we hold back telling the truth? If you don't speak up now in this culture, when you still have some freedoms left, what are you going to do when they're all gone? Well, I'll share with people in jail. Are they going to listen? If you've done any research, any background, you ever watch any war movies about the Holocaust, you find out the bitterness and the anger. And then when there was a little bit of food that was brought into a concentration camp, everybody sat there and said, okay, now this all divide this up equally. Is that what they did? No. Those same people came in, even though they were, you know, fighting the system, they weren't following God. And so it was the the Christians who shared their food with others in need. It was the Christians that typically died first because they hung out with the people with the diseases. They were ministering and they would catch things and they would not eat. And that's why some people in the concentration camps came to Christ because that's what love is. We think, oh, I love everybody. Until they do something nasty, until they do something I don't like, then my love ends. 1 Corinthians 13 says that's not love. It never fails. So we keep coming back to this. We have opportunities in our marriages. We have disagreements. Don't we? And how we process that and how we let go of that. If we don't hold a grudge, if we, we don't hate one another because, oh, how dare you do that to me? You're going to struggle. You're going to have things. And all that's doing is God's telling you, oh, you're not there yet. Because Christ didn't struggle with men. You ever see him just get ticked off and lose it? Punch his hole through. They didn't have sheetrock, maybe through the plaster. You know, or haul off and just smack somebody because they were being foolish. He never did that. that that's what we're working toward. Not that you, any of you ever smack holes in walls. It's the dumbest thing I ever thought of. As a kid, I, I knew people that did it. One guy actually watched him hit the wall and he hit right on the stud and broke his hand. And it didn't change his attitude any, it made it worse. And I learned early on, nah, nah, you don't want to throw things, you don't want to punch walls, you don't, that's a dumb idea. So I beat him up with words. And God's slowly taking that away from me. That's why I'm still here. What's what he's doing in you too. And is what he's trying to do with the Corinthians. He's trying to explain to them, your children, you are thinking childishly. You need to grow up. You need to move on. And this message out of Isaiah to the nation of Israel, that, or the Judah, they didn't believe, they didn't accept it. And you can see what happened to them as you follow that up. He says, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me. That's a word that carries a strong idea. They will not hear. They will not hearken. They will not obey. They're not changing their ways. They think they know better than God does. And then he clarifies it when he signs off. If you ever get a letter from God in the mail, hang on to it. Oh, you did get a letter from God. Maybe yours didn't come in the mail, but some of us did. And so as we pick that up, when we're looking at it, he signs it here. He says, listen to me, says the Lord, says the curios, says the master, the ruler, the ones who's in charge. When you go back to Isaiah 28, it is Yahweh is the term being used there. Who is God to you? If he's just kind of an appendage, appendix, or whatever I want to, what's the word? Appendage in, in your life. Sometimes I throw out words and they don't make sense. Is he an extra? Is he you know, only there when I need him? He's kind of like my emergency food supply. I heard somebody talk about that the other day, and they, 
this one guy said, yeah, I store up food. And he said, it's for everybody and anybody that needs it when the time comes. Because that's what love does. Hard for people to understand. God is not an appendage. God is the one in, in, in control. He is the owner of this world. People always, they keep saying that about Satan. Satan owns, he doesn't own this world. He is a ruler in this world. The, the world has yielded to him. Adam and Eve gave it to him. But believers don't. Believers have just changed loyalties. And as was mentioned earlier, it has gone from the broad road heading one direction to the narrow road heading the other. In Matthew 7. So he tells you in verse 22, he set this up. You're immature, you're being spoken to in tongues. And so verse 22, so then, the idea here is consequently, it's a conjunction, because of your unbelief, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy shouldn't say is for a sign. It's not in the text. Prophecy is not a sign. I'm not sure why they stick it in there, because they think people expect it. But it has nothing to do with it. Tongues are for a sign, not prophecy. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. When God reveals information through an individual, because they didn't have these writings yet, they didn't know, even when they were written, Paul would write it to a church or to a group of churches like in Galatia. But how long do you think it took before those letters got reproduced accurately and carried somewhere and passed on to others years if not decades we're spoiled you have a bible sitting there in your own tongue you can get study tools you can get different translations to help you understand it and how often or how well do we prize that when i was a kid i couldn't wait to get gold out of the ground we had a friend up in angels camp california i don't know if you're with that, uh, my friend's family actually, and we go up there, and he had three gold mines on that property, but he never let us in. And as a teenager at that age, probably 11, 12, it was like, oh, I, I was into coin collecting, I was in, I had a metal detector, I was into finding stuff and just pulling in these treasures. And then I realized as I collected them after a while, I, I got a box full of corroded pennies. Once in a while, a nickel or a dime, once in a while, silver, once in a while, a ring. But I realized as God got a hold of me, pff, worthless. You, you can't even put them in a gumball machine. They're so corroded and bent. Some of them are driven over or whatever, you, and, and they got discarded. And you're finding all this stuff. And my God changed everything about me. I didn't, that was not the treasure I was interested in. Now it was the word of God, starving to know more and to want more. And God was eager to give it to me. I didn't have to go find it somewhere like it was hidden but I had to work at putting it inside of me and this is what God wants he wanted it for them for the Corinthians they're not doing that they're babies and he's trying to explain to them you guys have elevated tongues you've made it the focus of your church it's out of control it's out of whack tongues are for a sign that's all it's about this gift of instantaneously miraculously speaking a language that was never learned or known before contrary to what a lot of what you're hearing today and how they're trying to teach you to learn tongues. Why aren't they teaching you how to prophesy? Why aren't they teaching you how to be an apostle? Even simpler, why don't they teach you how to be a teacher or an evangelist? They've elevated this because it was out of control in their church. It was chaos. The two-year-olds got together, and it sounded just like that. They're just getting at that stage where they're starting to put words together, and the whole room is... And you walk out and say, that was fantastic. Did you see the expressions on their faces? You get nothing. And yet the Corinthians are making it the focus. And he stresses to them as he's come on down through this, they're for a sign. They are a token, a mark, an indicator. They're pointing to something else. They were making it all about the sign and not about what it was supposed to be highlighting. You ever seen anybody on the roads ever get out of their car and go hug a 55 speed sign? And they're standing there and you pull up and you go, you okay? I found it, I found it. I'm claiming this sign for my own. I'm signing the back with my name. And the next day you drive by and there's flowers under it. 
And then pretty soon there's some kind of kneeling bench, some tables, then they plant some trees to have some shade. And pretty soon you're talking to this person and that's what they do. They go to the sign and worship it. That's what the Corinthians were doing with tongues. You missed the whole point. Did you see what the sign said? No, really, I was writing my name on the back. I didn't really pay attention. I just thought it was a great sign. Just the right color and the right size. And if they get heretical, or not heretical, what's the other word I'm thinking of? Um, zealous enough, and I'm looking for a different word there, but they'll pull that sign out of the ground and take it home. You've seen those, haven't you? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Some of you have taken signs. Campgrounds. Places where you think, well, this one's old. They're going to replace it anyway. Speed limits. I've been in some of your garages and barns. <laughs> Taking notes. Getting a GPS reading so I can send it on to the Forest Service or, or ODOT or whoever it was. I have one of those signs, but it was given to me legitimately. It was made out of wood and they had to get rid of them. It's not about the sign, but that's what they've done with the whole thing. They're, they're missing. It's not to those who believe. It's not to true Christians, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. That's not what tongues was for. Why are you making it the priority of your church? Who's there? Should be believers. He's even going to get down here and say, if an unbeliever comes in, wasn't common. There may be a few here today. I don't know. I don't know hearts, and I don't know some of you very well, but he's trying to bring out this thing here. You guys are still upside down, and he points out, as I put down, uh, it's not to those who believe, it's unnecessary for them, but it is for believers, and it's unavoidable for them. On the day of Pentecost, if you wanted to, if you paid attention, and all these people came flocking in because they couldn't miss the sign, and you couldn't fake it, it was supernatural. Same thing we talked about. In the same way that Christ healed people supernaturally as a sign, and he didn't heal everybody, so he's doing the same thing when they're speaking in tongues. When they're working as teachers, whenever it was supernaturally, instantaneously given to individuals to perform in the first century. It's not happening today. And as the heretic Jack told you, I think they're all gone. I think all of the, the gifts in the first century were spiritual training wheels and you can walk your way down through that you can go back even to the church fathers third century fourth century and they'll write and tell you there are no gifts functioning today especially tongues they're gone that's only their testimonies that's not inspired but why did they say that why would they point that out because as you go down through each one of the gifts you either can't explain it word of knowledge word of wisdom some of the ones you have no idea what they even were let alone the fact that apostles and prophets were foundational they're all done that tongues were going to cease in 1 Corinthians 13 8 and it did and on and on go through the gifts as soon as you are grown up enough that you're mature you don't need somebody with a supernatural ability to give where God gives them a chunk of money and they pass it on to the church or they pass it on to a mission need or whatever it may be used for it's gone so how are we going to function? What is he trying to tell the Corinthians overall? Grow up. Stop acting like little babies. Love each other. Tongues are simply for a sign. And he goes on to explain that in verse 23. When he says, if therefore, and again, what do we call these? Okay, this is a third class condition. We have conditional clauses in, in the Greek. This is a third class because it has an on for the if and it has a subjunctive for the, for the verb that it is using. That tells you it's third class. Third class is hypothetical. Could happen, might happen. Paul is going to describe some hypotheticals here that will never happen. So you've got people today that are believing in tongues that come along and they say, well, this is what should be happening. The whole church should be speaking in tongues. Paul starts right off with this idea of if. It's a hypothetical assumption. Imagine this scenario. But it's not how God designed it. It's what God told him don't do. Two or three at the most. 
Make sure there's an interpreter. And so what does he say here? If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? This didn't happen. This shouldn't happen. I told you I was in an auditorium with 3,000 people when I was a young, probably 16-year-old teenager, and I heard everybody in the room trying to speak in tongues. I had no idea what they were doing. It was a little bit frightening, but it was worthless. And it wasn't of God. But he throws this out. He's just kind of giving you this option. This is one way you can go. You can have this audience of ungifted unbelievers enter in. You're all speaking in tongues, and how are they going to respond to you? They're going to say you are crazy. Literally, the idea here is you are beside yourself. You're insane. You're a lunatic. They used to say you, the, the men would have to come in the white coats and put you in a straitjacket and carry you off to a padded room and try to bring you back to reality. Tongues were not for edification, but tongues also were not for confusion. And that's how a lot of it is today. It's, it's totally selfish. It's, it's this vain desire to show my emotions, to, to really feel something in the service, to think that God is involved, when it can just as easily be Satan that's involved. And more than likely, your mind that you've taught to do something that you don't have to teach. Tongues are a supernatural, instantaneous gift from God. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a little rusty. Been working on my tongues for a little while. Let me see if I, well, 15 different dialects. I don't know if I can carry this out. Is that what he did? Paul put no effort into it whatsoever. He just made himself available as an apostle to serve God. And God did it. That's what all of the gifts were for in the beginning. And so as he walks them through this, he's trying to help them understand this ungifted man, we talked about that last week, this person who is ignorant or uneducated, devoid of this special learning that's required, not up to speed with your practices. He walks in, he looks around and he goes, what is this? Can't understand them because he's not interested thinks they're all crazy. Are the unbelievers changed? The only thing they might say to you as they walk out the door is, goodbye, I'm never coming back to this place. Or like some of you have done, because you've been sharing with me during this series, you've been in places like that. And it went beyond just tongue speaking where they even bring people up and circle them and touch them and pray over them and tell them, loosen up and let your mouth just start going and it'll come to you. It's not God coming to them. Dangerous. God never tells you to let go of your mind as a believer. Walking by faith is not mindlessness. Faith is always based on evidence. There's always some evidence that you can depend on. God has revealed himself, and so in that, you can trust him. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And so as he's trying to lay this out, they're, they're trying to do something and they're, what they're doing has nothing to do with helping others. It's trying to make them feel better. And then once you get into an experience, you can try this. You, you live your life a certain way. You put on 20 pounds or more of what shouldn't be there, 50 pounds, 100 pounds. How easy is it for you to turn that around and say, okay, I'm done with that. What's it going to take? A lot of work. Discipline, time, the longer you take to lose it, like the way you gained it, the more likely you'll stay at a lower level at that point. Most of us struggle with weight. Some of you do not, and our love is being strained toward you. <laughs> We're even questioning God. Why? Why me? And I've heard that, again, as a pastor, you, you have people come in and I can't share, but there's, I got the 10-year rule. Once it's 10 years old, I can talk about anything. Just kidding. But, but they'll come in and they'll talk about, I wish my hair was long, and then the next person you talk to, I wish my hair was curly. I wish my hair was brown. I wish my hair was blonde. I wish, and I, just pick it on the one area. I wish I had hair. I keep trying to tell people, you're focusing on, on your hair like they were focusing on tongues. What difference does it make? Who gave you your hair? God. 
He'll give you tongues if it's coming from him and he wants it to happen. Relax and get busy doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Not, not this whole emotional experience and, and feeling like, oh, I went to church and I didn't get anything out of it. I, I just didn't feel like it. Well, this because you've been trained. You've allowed the weight to get on you for years and years in a traditional church that is teaching you tongues, that is teaching you the emotions, that makes you want to have to see people slain in the spirit or barking like dogs or whatever they're doing to say, yes, the Holy Spirit was there. Now I feel good about it. What are they not using? Their mind, their brains are gone, and the Bible is gone. I met with a pastor one time that we had a discussion along this charismatic area. Somebody was struggling. They wanted me to meet with the pastor where they met, and the moment he walked in the door, very polite guy, very humble, kind of soft-spoken, but he walked in without a Bible, and I went, okay, there it is. He wasn't coming to encourage the person attending his church that here's what God wants us to do and we're going to do it. He came in with the experiences of what was supposed to happen. He had nothing to say because I kept taking him to scripture. He had nothing to say. And the person that was meeting with me ended up leaving that church. I didn't tell them where to go or what they had to do. They had questions. I tried to give them answers from scripture and they realized that pastor, as nice as he was and everything about him that, that was attractive, he was empty. He was not edifying the church. He was letting the children run ram, uh, what's my word again? Ragged, whatever, out in the congregation and doing what, making them all happy. I've been in churches like that. I grew up in a church like that. I had to quit a church like that. And that church that I grew up in was saved in no longer exists. Somebody else took it over. The building's still there. The property's still there. But that church doesn't resemble anything of the church I grew up in and saved in in 1960. They're gone. The pastor of that church that was compromising dropped dead walking up to his front door with, with one of his deacons right behind him and got immediate care for him and they, they couldn't save him. Gone. I explained things to him. They were playing games with sin. They were covering it up. They were making people happy in the church. I resigned. They told the church I left to go to seminary. I didn't know I was going to seminary when I resigned. God opened up that door. This isn't a time for cover-up in people's lives. When you come to Christ, it's a time for honesty. That's why when you go down through here, you see what happens. If all prophesy, again, third-class condition in verse 24. But all don't prophesy. This is hypothetical. It's just thrown out. If all could prophesy, and an unbeliever, someone who's not saved yet, or this ungifted man who's ignorant and uneducated about gifts or whatever it is he's missing, he enters, and what happens to him? One, he's convicted. I put it down there, conviction. This word carries the idea of being reproved, exposed, detected. He undergoes this strong process inside of him where he realizes I am in a sinful state. Guilty. Step one, until the drunk that I grew up around with a number of people acknowledges I have a problem and it's wrong, you can't help them. Same thing with rescuing a swimmer. What do they teach you about someone who's thrashing around and grabbing onto whatever's there? Push them away and if, if you, once they give up, push them over and drag them back in. Don't let them get a hold of you. So what does God do sometimes? You see somebody thrashing and thrashing, but they're still breathing. They're still above water. You wait until they give up. Okay, now I can help you. That's what it means to come to Christ. So many people think, oh yeah, I've got, I got Buddha, I've got Muhammad, I've got all these other, I'm gonna put Jesus up on the mantle too. God goes, nope. What do you do with Dagon? Knocked him over. And when they decided, oh, that was a mistake, let's put him back up. What did God do with Dagon? chopped off parts of him and I, I can imagine from the way the Hebrew described it it was almost like a laser went through and cut it when they didn't have lasers it wasn't even saw marks it just severed and separated the two parts and the, the arms and legs are laid in one place and dig on you can't stand him up anymore God was trying to tell them something this God that you've created and set up is fake Follow the true God. Recognize your true need as of being a sinner and come to Christ. And so this conviction kicks in on the guy and all he's done is drop in to a healthy, mature body of believers who are teaching the word of God. 
And we get reactions here with new people. We don't have any today, right? They'll get up. We had people get up in the middle of the service. They were done. I watch people. I have people sitting here like this. I'm kind of like that Charlie Brown look. Slouch down on their chair and they're just giving me the evil look. You, you can't say that. You said, what? Pastors aren't allowed to say that. What? What? Finally, I saw him tap, sitting right here. Tap the shoulder of the one sitting next to him, and they both got up and walked out in the middle of my message. That's their prerogative. Felt sorry for them. Put up a, a, sent up a quick prayer for them. But they're making a choice. And did they come in expecting perfection? I don't, I don't think they thought I was God. Look how they respond to Jesus Christ, who was God and did teach perfectly. They still rejected him. They still fought with what he was doing. Peggy was just demonstrating, as you're all looking at her, of the idea of getting up in the middle of a sermon and walking away. And now I have your attention back. So as he's coming down into the second option, he's trying to tell them, this is what we do. We preach the word. We share the revelation that God has given to us. I don't need a prophet anymore. I have it. This is all I need for life and godliness. I'm not to add to it. I'm not to take away from it. It is sufficient. So I throw out the phrase, read your Bibles. I will make a point of that in a couple weeks. And I am not moving that I know of unless Mark is prophesying. We're simply asking God what we want to do, what he wants us to do. I will be here on the 19th and I'm not even preaching that day. But I'm going to work the door because Paul's going to have to be gone that Sunday. And I get to be a greeter. And you're going to come up to me and say, what are you doing here? Don't say that. <laughs> I have just as much right to be here as you do. The doors are open to all. So I don't know what the future. We're going to take a trip. We're running off into the sun, sunrise. Sunset. Yeah, we're running off into the sunrise and, and doing some things on a trip together with my wife and I and taking a break. And we've already got two church services lined up that we're going to be at, and I'm hoping we can find a third. Because that's what I do. I need to be fed. I need to be in fellowship. I need to be encouraged by the scriptures and by the believers around me. And we may get to one, and Bev and I will be halfway through, and I'll be like this. <laughs> and I get up and walk out. I, I've never done that. I usually want to see all of it, you know. If I'm really going to attack them, give me the whole thing. I raised my hand one time. I'm sorry, I get distracted. I raised my hand in a service one time, and this, the preacher was, um, he was preaching along, and nobody did that back in the day. That was a long time ago. And all of a sudden, I saw him notice my hand. He went, he kind of did a jerk, and he said, uh, you, you have a question? And I did. I had a question about his message. And when he answered it the way I thought he was going to answer it, I already had a resignation that I was turning in. And I wanted to verify are you saying what I think you're saying? And that's the church that told, I mean, the congregation that leaders told the church that we left to go to seminary. Nothing about me and what I wrote in that resignation and my concerns about hiding sin, playing games with scripture, not wanting to tell the world that they had a homosexual attending that church for a while. Shh, don't let anybody know. And he wandered off and he died of AIDS a few years later. Hiding, they kept hiding stuff. I, I couldn't work with that. I didn't, I didn't super embarrass him. Don't get me wrong. See, somebody the other day when I was preaching and I said something, they go, you go 90 miles an hour when I walked up. I said, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't. Whatever I said, you got the wrong impression. So don't go by impressions. Come ask me before you go tell everybody that Jack drives 90 miles an hour. Or, or when he goes and visits church on this, uh, churches on this trip, he's going to be raising his hand and challenging the preacher and pointing out things. No. Remember, I, I told you most of the time, that was a big deal for me to do that. I will sit in the back and I'll be perfectly quiet, maybe. But that was drastic. That, that church was in bad, bad shape. And God proved it by taking it away. He snuffed out their candlestick. And so as he's struggling here toward the end, he's telling them, here's what we're after. This is what we want. The power is in the word of God and not in your personal experiences. So he says, imagine this. This, this guy comes in and prophesies. And not only is he convicted reproved, exposed, detected it to like it's just screaming on the inside of him. I'm guilty. Then he says he's called to account. It's another passive. It's 
kind of interesting. It's not a verbal thing that they're doing to him, but inside he is examined closely. His sinful heart is disclosed. The truth shared judges his condition. I keep telling you that when you're witnessing to people, get the word out, get the word out. Don't just tell stories. Your testimony's fine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but get the word out. Share the Roman road, find something like the, the, may I ask you a question booklet that just takes them to simple little verses and forces them to ask themselves, are you a sinner? Do you deserve to die the wages of sin? Do you realize that Christ died on your cross for your sins? That you can believe and have eternal life and be set free? Make it simple, but let the scriptures do it. The, the idea in Rome or Hebrews 4 that we just studied on Wednesday night, quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's what the word of God does when you put it out. The Holy Spirit is the expert swords fighter. And if you do that, this says he reaches in and he chops them up on the inside. Boom, boom, boom. They're convicted. They believe they're wrong. They're called to account. They're judged as guilty in that situation. Then they come along with the third part here. He says that he is, um, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. This brings out the idea of these hidden things, these internal realities that he thought nobody else knew about. These deepest, deepest secrets are made conspicuous and obvious to him. It's like you're turning the light on inside of his heart. He has no place to go. And so when Stephen did that, when he's preaching in Acts 7, sharing his final words, how did they respond? Stephen, you're so right. They fell down and worshiped the living God, didn't they? No, they got so angry because the Holy Spirit was convicting and calling them to account and exposing their secrets and they just went berserk. They couldn't wait to kill him. So you're gonna find some of those, some not so nice people. How dare you tell me I'm a sinner? How dare you share with me that I need Christ, Jesus Christ as my savior. I don't even believe in him. I don't think he ever existed. Well, that makes him go away. How many, how many of you have been to the North Pole? I almost thought I, saw, thought I saw a hand there. Does it exist? How do you know? Oh, there we go again. Trusting those history books or all these movies and videos that Discovery puts out or National Geographic. You understand that you do that with, with thousands of things that you don't even question until somebody brings up Jesus Christ. Then they scrutinize it to death. Oh, they did try to kill him. And they did succeed because he laid down his life for them. And this is what's struggling here. You're going to get a reaction. You're going to get people off the fence. Fence sitters are religious. Fence sitters, you, you think they're good people. They may even be moral. They may be in a cult. They may be a lot of different things, but they're not in Christ. You're either in Christ on one side of the fence or you're on the fence or not in Christ. Those two are in the same camp. You can't play games with it. Don't get me wrong. I understand people sin and they fail and they struggle. And you look at Peter when, when he denied Christ. How long did that take for him to get his three denials out? Till first thing in the morning when the rooster crows three times. How long did it take for him to repent? Immediately. How did Judas respond? He went out, frustrated, went out and hung himself. And then the other verse, I think, oh, these are conflicting. No, he hung himself long enough. Nobody bothered. Nobody knew him. He had no relationships with him. And more likely his body just simply rotted, fell off that rope onto the ground and his bowels gushed out. Two different responses. I keep looking for evidence. I can't tell you. I've done many, many funerals. I can't tell you for sure that somebody's saved, but I can tell you pretty close because I either knew them long enough and saw the works of their lives and the evidence that Christ lived in them. Then I, I can stay in 99.9% sure, kind of like COVID. Sorry. Numbers keep standing out to me. And, and so I can rest in that. But oh, I get a stranger. I, I buried a one and a half year old one time. I buried a man who committed suicide. I didn't know him from Adam. And you go in and you start trying to collect evidence from the family. And they're all going to tell you that he went to heaven. I was at a, a memorial one day of somebody else doing it in a different church and almost stood up, had somebody there with me. It was a good thing. Put his hand on my, on my leg and said, no. Because that man was as unsaved as anybody I've known in Lapine. 
And the pastor was telling him, telling the congregation he went to heaven. Yeah. I wanted to get up there and, no, I, no, I don't do those kind of things. <laughs> Cut off his vocal cords. I, and I sat there looking around the room at all these people that I had been witnessing to that knew the person and a number of others that I knew weren't anything near Christ. And I'm sitting there, how can you do that? How can you do that? Because I don't love them. I want them to treat me right. I'm a two-year-old. I want them to give me what I want. Keep me in my job. And he's no longer around. He's been gone a long time. This is what God's after. And then the result is what you're going to see on the outside. He will fall upon his face and worship God. This idea of worship, people think, well, there he is. He's become a believer. Maybe. Maybe. But all this work for worship here is to show reverence, homage. It's the idea of respect. He's broken. He's admitting what's going on on the inside. But then look at his words. He will declare, he will report out by his mouth, announcing that God is certainly among you. So you, you've taken him as far as you can go. It's up to him to decide then, am I receiving that God? Am I receiving his payment for my sins? But I don't think he's there. He's just, you're getting him set up and prepped to make that decision because you are sharing the revelation of God with other people. Do you understand the power of what you have in God's word? The, the Hebrews 4.12, sharper than a two-edged sword. Do we read it? Do we memorize it. I grabbed a verse the other day and started working on it and going, man, at 68 years old, this is harder than it used to be. But I grabbed on one and I got, I've got the reference now in my head and I see it on the page and I'll keep going back to it because it said something that I wanted to lock into my brain. Am I sharing it with other people? You want to grow? Teach. I don't mean preach. I don't mean become a pastor. Find somebody who knows less than you and set up a regular time to get together with them. It will do two things. They'll be amazed at how much you know, and you will be embarrassed at how much you don't know. And that'll, then you have a decision to make. Either it's going to spur you on to know more, and they, they ask questions. You go, I don't know. Don't know. I'll write, write that quite right. Oh, okay, we got five. I don't think I need any more than that. I only have a week. And I may go to the pastor and ask him. I may go to somebody I trust. I may just go into the word for myself. But I get the answers. The next week we, we sit down together and I share. Here's what I found in scripture. Here's what I found in scripture. Here's what I found in scripture. Regardless of where you got it from, here's what the Bible says. You've just grown a whole bunch and you just met some needs. Because typically the questions I get from people are not life-changing. One time I had somebody very close to me ask me, and I knew they were being very humble. They, they asked me, Does, do men have one less rib than women? I didn't make a face. I simply went into an explanation in scripture. Adam did for a time, probably grew back, depending on how much God took from that rib. But he also took from his side, which is really what the Hebrew word is. He just grabbed a hunk, ripped it out. That's my interpretation. And made a woman. Did a pretty good job, didn't he? And they have all these phrases that go along with that. But the person, as soon as I said a couple things to them, they said, okay. And I could tell they went, okay. Don't humiliate me anymore. Don't make me look stupid because now I'm realizing that was a stupid question. And I said, if God had taken one of your ribs out of your body, this was, we were talked for a little while, and you had a son after they took the rib out, would your son be born with, without a rib? No. It wasn't a genetic thing. It was a physical operational thing. So the son was fine. It's still in the genetics. He got the rib. And he got his wife a different way. But it was just the idea. And I got questions like that. And this is somebody I had to look up to and respect. And, 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 but I was, what impressed me was that they were willing to ask the question. And they did that every once in a while. Just something like simple. And I didn't realize how much people struggle. With, they, they're so embarrassed that they don't know the Bible. Well, there's two things you can do about it. Nothing or something. Get into the word. Realize Paul's not making excuses for tongues here. Don't make excuses for tongues today. Don't let someone tell you they know they're saved because they spoke in tongues. Don't let that go by. You're sitting out in the middle, you raise your hand, you ask questions. 
How much do you know about tongues in the Bible? Hmm, not much. Let's read. I don't have to pounce on you. I don't have to tell you, that's an idiotic idea. Just take you to the word and talk. This is how you can disciple somebody. This is how you can have your, your meeting. Is you sit down and you go, let's read this, let's read this. What does that say? What does this say? What does that say? And they ask questions. Take them to the word. Take them to the word. Take them to the word. They have to process it. They have to interact with it. But God wants us to grow up. And then what you're going to do when they're asking about ribs and you go, that means nothing. It has no importance, no eternal significance. I answer it, but then I take them in and say, do you understand why God did that? Why he made the woman like that? Do you understand what's involved? And you can take them in. You can use it as a teaching opportunity. And I'm over time. But I only have one more week, so I have to take advantage of it. Next week is a long section. It covers some controversial areas, areas you don't want to miss. I will make a final fool of myself in seeking to teach the truth. You're not going to like what I'm going to teach next week unless you follow the scriptures. Then you're going to realize why the world's messed up because they're not. So we will do the best we can time-wise and whatever. And next week, since I can't get fired, I could go for hours. So bring a lunch. Oh, we are bringing a lunch. So you're in good shape. Make sure you know the Lord. If you have any questions about that, get, get help. Ask somebody you respect as a true believer that can share with you from Scripture. If you don't know him, I would love to talk with you today and explain more of whatever is necessary for that. But don't not know. Don't hope I'm going to make it. That's not how it works. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is simple and straightforward. Uh, the sign that was made for the Jews that should have got their attention that what you were teaching through Peter was from you, the majority of them rejected it. They did not recognize the indication you were giving them. And now today in modern churches, it's been distorted and elevated to a position it never intended to be. And it's leading people away from Jesus and toward themselves. May you help us to know the truth. May you help us to teach the truth. And if we have family members and friends that are involved in a charismatic way that is putting an overemphasis on tongues of any sort, especially in regards to salvation, Father, may you give us boldness to speak up. Lovingly, patiently, gently, but truthfully. And not think it's not our business when they claim to know you. Help us to help them. And may we grow in our love for you, Father, in preparation for your son's return. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.